I think my number one tip would be to to relax and chew food properly. So make time for eating. Mm-hmm. Um, look at your food, smell your food, sit down and chew it properly because a lot of people skip that phase and that's a really important stage of digestion. That's a cephalic stage that involves all the head, so seeing food, smelling food, even hearing it being cooked. So I think just taking time to enjoy your food, relax and chew it properly because that can alleviate many, many digestive symptoms. When it came to eating and dieting, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I interviewed over a thousand women and I said, what did you do? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What did you eat? How'd you do it? If you want to learn how to lose weight for life through intermittent fasting, burn fat, and break the bondage of food, then this podcast is for you. I'm Chantel Ray, author of Waste Away, The Chantel Ray Way, and each week I have different guests answering your questions. Remember, the thoughts and opinions in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode, and I'm so excited for my next guest, who's joining us from all the way across the pond. She lives in York. She is a health writer, a a registered nutritional therapist and nutritionist, and welcome Sally Duffin. Hi, hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about York. Like, I, I love that you live there and what got you into your own wellness journey? Okay, so York is a beautiful city in the north of England. Uh, we've got just loads of history. Just walking around the city, you're just basically walking through a history book. We've got Viking stuff, we've got Romans, medieval, we've got a huge cathedral in the middle, um, lots of beautiful parks. It's just a gorgeous place to live. Yeah, lots of little independent shops and things. I've lived here all my life. So I will tell you, I have a lot of friends who are um, gluten-free and they cannot have gluten here in the United States. But they say that when they go to France or they go to England, they go, you know, in Germany, they can eat gluten and they feel great. They have no problems at all. Um, So isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, because I'd have thought that it would be the same issue wherever they go. So do you, let me ask you, do you guys, do you have any problems yourself personally with gluten intolerance? I'm wheat intolerant, uh, but to be honest, gluten, um, well, I know it will be doing something to me, but I don't get any symptoms from it. So I'm okay with things like barley and rye, but I do avoid wheat. Um, I'm sensitive, sensitive to the other proteins that are in wheat. So what happens, like, what are some of your symptoms that happen when you personally eat wheat? Oh, if I eat wheat. So because I've avoided it now for so long, I've avoided it for about five years. And I can sometimes get away with just having, you know, the odd thing. If I'm out and there's only sandwiches to eat, then, you know, sometimes I'll be okay. But other times, if I did start to eat it regularly again, I'd get very bloated. So by the end of the day, I'd have a little pot belly. Um, I would get very tired. Um, and sometimes even now, if I eat wheat, it has such a soporific effect on me. I almost feel like I've been drugged and that I just want to sleep. I have to sleep it off. Um, so those are the two main symptoms, really. And also, it just makes me crave more sweet things. It's weird. If I eat some wheat, I will be craving more sugary foods a few hours later. That is true, for sure. Um, so in my 
newest edition of my book, Waste Away, I talk about how people don't need to deprive themselves when it comes to food, but everyone needs to decide for themselves what are their red light, yellow light, and green light foods. And what I mean by that is red light means like you absolutely kind of like your wheat, like you say, uh-huh. I'm just not eating this. I know when I eat it, I feel terrible. And then I have my yellow light foods where I go, you know, I don't feel great when I eat this, but sometimes I'll have it. Uh, what are those red and yellow light foods for you personally? Okay, so for me, wheat is definitely a red light food, like I've just been saying. Um, the other two, I guess, would be caffeine. Um, I can't go anywhere near caffeine. I stopped drinking it many, many years ago. And now even if somebody accidentally gives me a decaf tea, I will know about it. Um, and the other one would be most dairy products as well. So I can get away with a little bit of butter. Um, I use butter in cooking, um, but if I, you know, try to drink a glass of milk or something like that, because I'm a bit lactose intolerant, so I would get a lot of digestive symptoms and also some indigestion from it as well. So I really try and stay clear from that. Yeah, in the same way. So if you had to pick your top three nutrition tips for listeners, what would they be and why? Okay, I think my number one tip would be to to relax and chew food properly. So make time for eating and look at your food, smell your food, sit down and chew it properly because a lot of people skip that phase and that's a really important stage of digestion. That's a cephalic stage that involves all the head. So seeing food, smelling food, even hearing it being cooked. So I think just taking time to enjoy your food and relax and chew it properly because that can alleviate many, many digestive symptoms partially sometimes wholly just by relaxing and chewing food properly so that would be my number one tip uh, number two would be to start to tune in to how you feel after what you've eaten so rather than just blithely eating everything that you normally do and you know kind of just plowing on through no matter what your symptoms are maybe try keeping a food diary for a couple of weeks um, and just noticing if any of your signs and symptoms tie in with certain foods. Because once you tune in to how your body feels after eating certain things, it opens up a lot more information for you. And you can make much more wise decisions about foods and your food choices. So that would be my number two tip. And then the last one I think would be to buy the best quality food that you can. Um, we get so used to food being cheap that we think it should be cheap and it shouldn't actually. It should cost a fair amount of our wage packet if we're buying good quality food. And I know it depends on what your income level is, but I think just buying the best that you can because we only have one body and we've got to give it the best nourishment that we can if we want to live a, a healthy life. So really just investing as much as you can in good food. I love the fact that you said, you know, in my book, I talk about slowing down and savoring the food. And I would say that that is something that even though, you know, I've interviewed all these women and that is what they say of just how slow they eat. I would say that is so, so important. I still, to this day, like, so if you look at a spectrum, like I used to literally inhale my food, like, I mean, like, you know, just like, as fast as I possibly could, because I do everything fast. I talk fast. I walk fast. I move fast. (laughs) And so even still to this day, you know, I've gotten so much better. I mean, I eat so much slower. I really savor my food, but I'm still not where I need to be as far Mm -hmm. as I'm still eating too fast and I'm still not savoring and chewing my food 
yeah. to the level that, that I have seen people who have great digestion and really have mastered the art mm -hmm. of savoring. I don't feel like I'm, I've mastered that. I'm so much better, but I'm definitely, and I love that that was your number one tip. Yeah. So tell us a little more about your, about nutrition in New York. Like what is its core mission and how do you gear it to meet each individual's client specific needs? Okay. So my, my own kind of mission has always been about empowering people, um, sharing the information that I've learned so that they can make um, good choices themselves. They can have that knowledge to take charge of their own health and actually feel that they're doing something about their health because quite often people feel powerless, especially when they've got chronic ill health problems. They feel that they're at the mercy of the medics and actually there's so much that we can do with food. So it's always been a big um, issue for me to, to be empowering people and, and sharing the knowledge. And um, so I started my clinic uh, 10 years ago. So I've been in practice 10 years. And after a short while, I then joined an education team at a supplement company so that I could help people to train to do this. And I've carried that on. And I do a lot of education work now as well. And it's part of why I enjoy writing as well. So if people can't necessarily get to see a clinician one-on-one, -on -one, then they can read things, you know, um, doing like your brilliant podcast that's reaching a lot of people, going on the radio, anything like that, just to spread the message. And people will pick up tips along the way and that inspires them to start their own journey as well. And I've had several clients who um, worked with me one-on-one -on -one and then gone on to become a student on the college course where I work and they've trained to become practitioners themselves because they've just enjoyed the benefits. They've seen how transformative it can be and changing what you eat and, and doing your nutrition. So in terms of how I kind of tailor it to each client, my business is transitioning a little bit now and I don't really do a lot of one-on-one -on work, one -on -one work now. Um, but when I did, it would be very much about finding out what someone's aims were and really personalizing my recommendations to suit them and their lifestyle so that no two clients would be getting the same recommendations. It would be unique to that person. Um, and now with doing a lot more workshops and writing work and things, when people join my Facebook group, there are two simple questions I ask them to answer. And it's um, what interests you about nutrition and what do you find challenging about nutrition? So then I already know what problems people are facing. So I can then tailor my content to help them overcome those challenges. Um, and just talking to people at workshops and finding out what they're struggling with and trying to point them in the right direction and give them the resources that they need. And so talk to everyone. I know we talked about gluten. What exactly, for people who don't know, why is it so hard for people now to struggle, why they struggle to digest gluten? And what does gluten do exactly when we eat it? Can you talk about that for a second? Mm, yeah, certainly. So Gluten, um, the main source of gluten for most people is in wheat, um, because a lot of people have a wheat-heavy diet with that bread, pizzas, things like that. Um, so the wheat that we have now is very, very different to the wheat that was grown even kind of 50 years ago, because it's been crossbred and hybridized and altered, and it's got a different protein content. It's much, much higher in gluten. And this is to support the bread making industry, because a higher gluten content is one of the ways in which that they can make bread faster, so they can get a loaf of bread onto the shelf faster, rather than having to stick with the traditional long fermentation type that you have to do with traditional bread making techniques. Um, 
we as humans, we're not equipped to handle that level of gluten. The gluten is there as a storage protein for the grain, and it is very tough to digest. And that's because it's there to nourish the grain. It's not there, there to nourish us at all. So we don't really have the enzymes in our digestive system to break that gluten down. Um, and when we eat gluten, and it has this effect in everybody, is that it increases the permeability of the lining of your gut. And um, so it stimulates more zonulin to be produced, which increases the permeability, the gaps between the cells in our intestines. So then we get things passing through into our bloodstream that we shouldn't have passing through. And this is one of the ways in which various autoimmune diseases can be triggered. And if you have good digestive health, then that permeability is repaired fairly quickly. But so many people don't have good digestive health. They've got imbalances in their gut microbiome and their gut integrity is, is compromised and pretty constantly. And if you've got this drip, drip feed of gluten coming in all the time, then that gut permeability is never really getting chance to be dealt with properly. And, and then this can kind of, in the words of the, um, one doctor, it just opens the doorway to inflammation. If you're constantly eating gluten and your digestion can't handle it, you are just opening the doorway to inflammation in your body. Um, so this is why it is linked with so many um, different health conditions as well. And now for you personally, do you eat any kind of bread and what kind do you do? Like, you know, some people say, you know, I can do sourdough bread because, you know, that fermentation process reduces gluten levels or is there anything that you can, you do to eat bread or do you avoid it at all costs? I don't have very much bread at all. And when I do, I go for a, a wheat free and gluten free loaf. And um, I have, I do sometimes maybe have um, some sourdough if I'm eating out somewhere and that's the only thing that they've got is a traditionally made sourdough. But that's not brilliant for me still because I have more of a problem with the other wheat proteins rather than the gluten. So whilst the gluten levels are much lower in traditional sourdough, you've still got some of the other proteins there as well. So, so I won't have a lot of that at all, maybe kind of one or two slices at the most and that would be a one-off for me. So I tend to just eat a regular gluten-free, wheat-free love i have to say i have tried making them myself and i'm absolutely rubbish at baking and all things like that so i just don't bother <laughs> even in a bread machine i managed to get it wrong and it came out like a brick and so i do buy ones from the store um, and i just yeah i don't buy very big ones or i'll keep it in the freezer and just get a couple of slices out when i want to so why do you think some people do better talk about the sourdough process of why some people might be able to have like a sourdough bread but they can't have a piece of regular bread mm. it's to do with the fermentation process so sourdough bread traditionally made only has about three or four ingredients in and you get the sourdough starter and that kickstarts the fermentation process of the the grain um, and it's all the microbes that are in that sourdough starter. So it's a bit like when you've got a starter to make yogurt, it's the bacteria that then turn the milk into yogurt. With sourdough starter, you've got the bacteria that are helping to um, ferment the grain and it provides its own natural rise to it as well. Um, and there's, there's even been studies done, one study was done in Italy a few years ago where they used the traditional sourdough process on regular wheat grains and it had less than 20 parts per million of gluten in by the time it was finished. So it could actually be classified as gluten-free in some countries because that was low enough gluten content. And that was simply through the sourdough fermentation process. They've not done anything else to it at all. And um, so it's to do with the, the time that these microbes take 
to actually start breaking the grain down and they break down the gluten so then it's, it's not such a problem for us when we're eating it. Now the question I ask all my guests, take me through a normal day in the life of Sally. Like what did you eat yesterday? When did you eat it? Did you work out? And kind of what did your day look like? Okay. So yesterday, uh, it was Tuesday. So um, I go running twice a week, but yesterday it wasn't a running day. So I did a yoga workout when I got up in the morning. And so I love yoga, I've been doing it for years. And on Tuesday mornings, I have a little bit more time. So I tend to do a longer yoga practice of about 45 minutes or something. So I did that first. And then I had my breakfast, which was um, about three or four tablespoons of cooked apple stewed apple, organic apples, and I had that with some sugar-free granola. It's granola that was made with honey. And I had some organic live soya yogurt um, and oh nuts. I always chuck a, a good pound full of nuts onto that as well. So that was all mixed up, nice warm apple um, with the cold yogurt. Um, then at lunchtime, actually yesterday, it was unusually a vegetarian day for me. Um, I'll often have kind of a vegetarian meal, but not a whole day. Um, but my friend had made a lovely vegetable curry and a, a dal for me the day before and I had leftovers. So I had leftover lentil dal with some rice and some rocket and salady bits for my lunch at work. And then for tea, we had um, baked, a small baked potato with um, plenty of Sri Lankan vegetable mixed curry with that. And that was my tea. Yeah. And that, oh, I actually had a cake yesterday as well. Yes, I met a client in the afternoon um, to do an interview. And um, yeah, I treated myself and had a plum oat crumble kind of cake thing. Yeah, that was my treat. Mm. <laughs> um, well, I have, if you go to my site, go to chantelrayway.com slash recipes. I have the best granola recipe. It's made with a little bit of honey, but it is to die for like anyone who's made it and you have to follow the recipe exact um because you have to take the granola take it out of the oven and then put it back it's easy to do but you have to follow it exact and i'm telling you it will be the best granola you've ever had (laughs) i have to try that because i make my own and yeah if yours can beat mine then i'm obsessed (laughs) with granola i love it well let's jump right into the listener questions yeah um this first one is uh, from Corey in Stafford. Hi there. Love the podcast and the book. Question though, I have adrenal fatigue and really struggled with 16 hour fasts even. Got debilitating headaches several days a week for several weeks. Then I heard from two different nutritionists that they don't recommend fasting with adrenal fatigue since it adds more stress to your body. Just wondering what your take is. Um, now, have you? do you personally do any fasting at all yourself? Um, the most I will do is a 12 hour overnight fast. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. And certainly for someone like Corey with the adrenal fatigue, I definitely wouldn't recommend anything longer than a 12 hour fast at all, because um, it's simply putting more stress on your adrenal glands. So if you've got adrenal fatigue, they're already massively overworked. But if you're fasting for a long time, it can be that your body's needing to try and produce more cortisol to mobilize any stored sugars in your muscles. And if you've got adrenal fatigue, it's already struggling to produce enough cortisol. So please just give your adrenals a rest um, and maximum 12 hours and do that overnight so that you're already resting as well, but no longer than that. Yeah. And I think that what, what she needs to do is really try to get down to the root cause of what yeah. is going on 
with the adrenal fatigue because for for me i have literally seen people who have had adrenal fatigue and they you know i believe intermittent fasting literally improves people's hunger and fullness improves their blood sugar affecting hormones it helps it has so many benefits of it but you have to like get your body to adjust so it's like if you go from if you already have adrenal fatigue and now you're doing longer fasts your body is you're right it's going to put it into a stress state but i believe that you can work your way up to it and i believe that the fasting can can help you um so my suggestion for her would be maybe bring bring your uh, eating, make your eating window longer, but then slowly start decreasing it. And the debilitating headaches, that is probably caused from some sort of food sensitivity that she's having. So I would really dive into what is that food sensitivity that she's having because the I don't believe that the, the headaches are causing, if she's eating, you know, if she's only doing a 16 hour fast, that's not going to get her to a debilitating headache. That, that's that got to be a root cause of something else. So we have to figure out what that root cause is. Yeah, it could be. And it certainly could be to do with inadequate magnesium levels as well, because your adrenals need a lot of magnesium to function. And one sign of magnesium deficiency is headaches. Um, so I'd certainly look into that as well. Yeah. So let's expand on that just a little bit, because I personally believe I have a little bit of a magnesium um, deficiency as well. Talk about what your favorite um, part, your favorite magnesium supplement would be and how they would take that. Okay. So um, there's a few, and I think it depends on the person as well. So magnesium citrate would be one that I would generally start with. Um, and if someone has very good digestion, then a capsule would be okay. Um, sometimes a, a lot of the people I've seen don't have very good digestion and magnesium is a little bit of a diva when it comes to being absorbed. It likes the microbiome to be in balance before it will be properly absorbed. So if anybody's got IBS or anything like that, then maybe look at a transdermal form of magnesium first of all. So using Epsom salts in the bath that can help um, and a magnesium spray. So there's quite a few good transdermal magnesium sprays that can be used. And um, so you're absorbing the magnesium through your skin, first of all, and that can be used alongside a tablet as well, just a lower dose tablet or capsule, just to try and get magnesium in through two different avenues as it were. Um, magnesium glycinate is very good, particularly if you um, are wanting to support the kind of the calming side of the, the nervous system. So if somebody's very hyperactive or overstimulated, anxious, then the magnesium glycinate can be helpful because it's a magnesium bound to glycine, which is a calming neurotransmitter for the brain. And um, so that would be another good form as well. I tend to avoid the magnesium oxide, the cheaper form. Um, simply because it can have a laxative effect um, for people and that's generally not what they want. Um, but yeah, so I would tend to go citrate or glycinate and also consider the transdermal forms as well. Yeah, and I, I mean some of the other things for magnesium deficiency for this lady, maybe she would say, okay, are you fatigued? 
Obviously, mm -hmm. she has the headaches. Does she have digestive trouble? Is she having trouble with sleeping? Does she have brain fog or constipation? Then, you know, magnesium deficiency might be a big mm -hmm. you know, factor for her. Um, yeah. What do you think about testing for magnesium, um, like in their blood levels and doing a magnesium RBC test? Um, I tend not to do the blood test side of things because your body will keep levels of minerals within very tight parameters within the blood. So it's not always a very accurate reflection of what's going on at a cellular level. Um, but I have used the urine tests that do like the organic acid tests. Um, so it's a simple urine sample one, which looks at the metabolic markers um, that show how well you are using these minerals and vitamins in your system. So that can be a good way and to look at actually how your body is using magnesium. Is it functionally being used? Because we do see a difference between um, blood samples and actually how stuff is being used in the system. And B12 is another good example of that. Your body will keep vitamin B12 within very tight parameters. But if you then check methylmalonic acid in the urine, that can tell a very different story to what the um, serum B12 is doing. So I tend to favor the, the urine tests that give more of a, a functional answer. Yeah, and I think it's also a good idea to check people's vitamin D levels because since oh, magnesium yeah. and vitamin D depend on each other for function and absorption, you know, to making sure they're not just getting vitamin D, but also getting yeah. that magnesium. Hey so guys, I hope really you're enjoying help. the episode so far. But as you know, I've interviewed over a thousand women and every time I've watched a thin eater eat, I realized that maintaining a healthy weight is a skill that can be taught and mastered over time. That's why I created a video course that will teach you all the tips that I learned to help me lose over 30 pounds. It's way more powerful to watch The Thin Eaters than even to listen or to read it. Go to ChantelRayWay.com video for a free glimpse. If you're wanting to take yourself to the next level, everyone needs a coach. Every professional player has a coach. We want to come alongside you and help you in your journey. Go to ChantelRayWay.com coaching. I just had someone listen to the audiobook three times and she just emailed me and she said by her listening to the audiobook three times, that's what did it. That's what allowed her to really lose the weight. We have an amazing offer for you. It's the second edition of my book, which has tons more information. It has the audiobook, the ebook. It normally runs for $29.99. You can get it today for $4.99. Go to ChantelRayway.com slash deal to get it. Now back to the show. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. This next one is from Ashley in New London. I wonder where New London is. I don't know. I don't know what city that is. <laughs> Um, it says, I have become obsessed with listening to your podcast. Thank you. My question is, my sister's daughter has terrible eczema. She's 19 months and has been food allergy tested and it all came back normal. I've been trying to help her out by suggesting things like a safer detergent, non-alcoholic lotions, etc. What can she do to get the root cause of eczema? Ashley in New London. Okay. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I would want to know what kind of food allergy test was done there. Was it a skin rash test? Was it a blood test? What were they looking at in the blood? Were they just looking at IgE? 
for full-on allergic response? Or were they looking at IgG, which is more associated with the sensitivities and intolerances? Um, but equally, because um, the little girl is under two, I wouldn't always place that much emphasis on that result. And certainly wouldn't do an IgG test on a child under two anyway, because the immune system is still developing. So it's not going to give you a clear, accurate picture. Um, I would consider, um, well, certainly doing a food diary to see what the little girl is eating, to see if you can kind of pick up on anything that inflames it even more, or if things get better at certain points. And there's quite a bit of research um, looking at dairy uh, with childhood eczema. So you could even experiment with going dairy free for perhaps a month and see if that makes a difference. Um, and obviously looking at other food sources of things like calcium so that she's not going to miss out on anything. But a lot of the dairy free milks tend to be fortified with calcium um, these days anyway. So that could be something to consider and certainly discuss with the doctor. Um, that, yeah, the, the dairy alternatives would be an interesting one. I would do that first. Um, and then, I mean, there's other things that can be an intolerance and a sensitivity that won't necessarily show up on a test as well. So things like histamine foods can often provoke um, eczema, even salicylate foods, foods that are high in salicylates, that can be linked with eczema as well. Um, I would start with the dairy because that is quite a common trigger for childhood eczema. But I would keep in mind that there are other things in foods that can cause problems, things like eczema that won't necessarily show up on a, a standard blood test. Um, and in terms of what she could eat to try and ease it, then it would be a very much an anti-inflammatory diet and one that's got plenty of the good fats in there as well. So we need lots of the omega-3, 6 and 9 to help with the cell membranes, to help reduce the inflammation um, and support the, the skin health there. And things like zinc, vitamin A, all your colourful fruits and vegetables that are packed with all the different antioxidant compounds as well that help to manage inflammation in the body. And um, so those, those are the areas that I would start with, really. And it can take time, unfortunately, for childhood eczema. It's not always an overnight thing. Yeah, I agree. I would definitely do an elimination diet. I would, I would get rid of, I would try to do dairy, eggs, gluten, wheat, um, soy, tomatoes and i would also look at citrus fruits because i've i've had a lot of people who have emailed in with questions and they say that citrus fruits actually flare up their eczema um, yeah i wouldn't do all of those at once though because we've got to remember she's 19 months old yes, true so i would definitely do one at a time and i would start with see what helps yeah, yeah for sure um and then i have heard that people with eczema especially if it's on their hands and feet, um, that they benefit from eating foods that don't contain nickel. And nickel is found in like trace amounts in the soil and can be like in some of the foods. And some of that is like in nuts, seeds, um, some canned meats, chocolate. Yeah, I would look at, at some of that. Um, mm. So, but I definitely would say, you know, trying that elimination diet is really the best thing and taking out certain things and seeing if that improves for sure. Yeah, taking them out one at a time and really focusing on things that, you know, she can have as well. Um, it's, it's difficult with kids, it really is, because quite often they're picky eaters anyway, or they've got a limited diet and then not, you know, they've not got the same mindset as an adult has who thinks, okay, I don't really want to eat quinoa, but you know, I, this is going to do me good while I'm avoiding something else. 
you know, if a child doesn't want to eat quinoa, you're not going to get it in them. So sometimes <laughs> you know, you've got to make a little bit of compromises there. Yes. And then she said, I've been also trying to help her out by suggesting things like safer detergent, non-alcoholic lotions. What are some of your favorite products as far as detergents go, organic detergents or any kind of lotions or products that you love? So here in the UK, we've got Ecova. I don't know if you guys have it in America, Ecova and Ecoleaf. They're two lovely detergents um, that are, um, you know, very ethical, but also just minimum um, chemicals in there as well. Using things like these um, laundry bowls that you can get that they don't have any detergent in or some have natural um, soaps in from plants as well. So they're basically just helping with the friction of your washing in the water. So they're just 100% chemical free. And so, you know, there's nothing in there whatsoever that could be helpful. Um, in terms of the lotions, usually with eczema, it's good to have like two or three and rotate between them so the skin doesn't get used to them. Um, aloe vera can be very helpful because that's just so wonderfully soothing and, you know, the polysaccharides in there really support the skin health anyway. Um, uh, Jason's, do you have Jason's in America? Yes. Um, yeah, that's a good skin brand. Yeah, they do really nice aloe vera cream. Um, a nice calendula cream. If you've got a herbalist that can put together a calendula cream, that's marigold. That's incredibly soothing and healing for any kind of skin condition. And it's very, very simple on the skin, lovely for babies and children. So I'd look for a calendula one as well. Yeah, my husband likes, my husband, I was using this brand called seventh generation and it was free and clear and had no sense and he was like i need to get something with some kind of scent he's like i don't like like smelling my towel and it doesn't smell good so they do <laughs> have one that's like a fresh lavender scent and it is made with all essential oils um wow. which is good but yeah i wouldn't touch like regular laundry detergent like a tie no, or any no. of those to save myself and I certainly would try and stay clear of the steroid creams as well because they just, yeah, cause problems further down the line or anything that's got a paraffin base to it as well. Um, just not great. You're going to destroy the, the skin's natural oil barrier with that. All right. This is from Kayla in Grand Rapids. I'm getting married in seven months and going on my honeymoon in Bora Bora. I can't wait, but I really want to look good in my bathing suit and I need to get six pack abs. How should I eat to get six pack abs? Kayla in Grand Rapids. Wow. Well, congratulations, Kayla. That sounds exciting. Um, yeah, the first thing that that makes me think about is, do you actually really need six pack abs for your wedding? <laughs> because that is a lot of pressure to put on yourself. And you don't want to lose the focus of this, you know, all the excitement that's going to be building up to your wedding and what the wedding is actually about, you know. So by all means, try and get fit and healthy, but please don't lose perspective on what this day is and what this day means for you, because you can still have an amazing honeymoon without six packs um, and your abs. I had a wonderful honeymoon and my stomach is nowhere near a six pack. So great idea, but please keep it in perspective. I don't want you to lose out on the enjoyment of what this um, the day and the honeymoon is all about. I think really this is partly nutrition, but also exercise. I mean, if you want six pack abs, you, there's going to be a lot of vigorous exercise routine to, to stick to there. So 
Um, if you're not already in a gym, then joining a gym or getting a personal trainer or something like that is going to be really important for you to stay focused and to have a plan um, to develop your exercises to get to that point. In terms of uh, what you're eating, then, well, I mean, it's a good balance of everything, but certainly looking at the fats. So um, a good balance of healthy fats because um, the fats will help your metabolism to help stimulate your metabolism so that you will burn more fats effectively. So if we're talking about converting um, fat into muscle, then certainly looking at your intake of essential fatty acids, that's going to be really helpful. Um, eating things such as grass-fed beef and the full-fat dairy because they contain your conjugated linoleic acid which is something that can help um, if you're training to do that conversion of fat to muscle. So it helps with the, the muscle building. Um, looking at your protein intake, obviously, because we need that for um, healthy muscles when you're training. And also the antioxidants, which are often overlooked when people are trying to lose weight and not tone up. Your fat cells store a lot of toxins, so it is really important to make sure you've got a really good intake of antioxidants because once you start breaking down those fat cells, you're releasing toxins into your system. So again, this comes back to your brightly colored fruits and vegetables, mainly the vegetables because they've got a higher content. Making sure you are eating a rainbow, a good seven servings of veg every day, maybe a couple of fruit as well, and just to make sure you've got a really good supply of the antioxidants then. And again, that helps with recovery after training as well. So things like delayed onset muscle soreness, if you've got plenty of antioxidants like vitamin C and vitamin E in your system too. Um, so those are the main areas I've been looking at. And obviously cutting out all refined processed foods, refined sugars, everything like that. Um, not necessarily going completely carb free because you do need carbs for your energy levels. So, but just looking at your portion size there and keeping that in balance with everything else that you're having. And good luck. <laughs> and um, I remember you saying that you said butter is something that you don't do, you do okay with. Um, and I saw on your, your site, you had a great recipe for how to make homemade ghee. Talk yeah. about how someone does that, um, how to make homemade ghee and why is that a little bit better than butter for some people? So the ghee is pretty much pure butter fat. Um, so it's taken out the proteins and it's taken out, it can never 100% guarantee, but it's taken out nearly all the lactose, the milk sugar. And um, so it's often suitable for people that are lactose intolerant like me. Um, and it's very easy to make your own ghee. So just buy a good block of good quality grass-fed um, dairy butter, um, organic if you can, and you chop it up into little cubes and then you start to melt it gently. And you keep an eye on it, just stirring it every now and again, and it will go through various stages of bubbling up and then the bubbles will calm down and then it will bubble up again. And you'll start to see this ready colored sediment at the bottom of the pan. And once that has formed and you've had that second round of bubbles come up, then it's ready to strain and you strain it through um, cheesecloth um, or a very, very fine mesh into a jug and then pour it in a, a sterilized jar and you leave it to set. Um, and it's just wonderful. Your kitchen will smell like popcorn when you make ghee. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and it will just set and then that's it. There's your ghee. Uh, you're good to go with the cooking. Awesome. And how often do you make that? Oh, when I get time, really. I haven't got any in the kitchen at the minute, but I just, I keep buying the butter thinking, yep, this weekend I will make some more ghee. <laughs> yeah. And because you don't feel terrible when you eat it. So you're like, okay, I can 
and you can buy ghee. Yeah, and I don't use I don't use a lot of butter in cooking anyway. I tend to cook more with coconut oil. Um, so yeah, and the little bit of butter I do use, I can tolerate that absolutely fine. Um, but just yeah, ghee adds a different element if you're doing an Indian dish, for example, because that's what they would traditionally use. So frying your spices in ghee is just an amazing smell and taste. Yeah. Okay, this one's from Laura in Chesapeake. Recently, I've been getting really bad heartburn. I notice it more whenever I eat anything that contains chicken, grilled chicken, fried chicken, even just a little portion of shredded chicken mixed in with other foods. I never used to get it, then suddenly almost I get it almost all the time. I've tried taking over-the-counter medicine to help, but it doesn't really do much for my symptoms. Is there anything on the more natural side that I can take to help prevent this? Also, is there any reason I specifically only get it whenever I eat chicken? <laughs> Laura in Chesapeake. Oh, Laura, this is a bit of a puzzler. Um, I mean, there's no reason why I can think of that it would just be specifically chicken, but then also why not? You know, we all have different ways in which we can tolerate things. So it may be that chicken is a trigger for you for heartburn. And um, one thing I was thinking about was, is it very fatty chicken that you're having? Because very fatty foods, they do stimulate a production of something called cholecystokinin, which is part of our digestive process and you're producing it anyway, but it's, you get higher amounts of it produced in response to very fatty foods. And that can relax the ring of muscle at the top of your stomach. So that may be accommodating a little bit more of the, the reflux and the heartburn. Um, so that's just a thought in case it is very um, fatty, because I know you mentioned that it happens when it, it's fried as well. So yeah, I would expect that to do that then. Um, coming back to what we talked about earlier, are you taking time to eat? Are you relaxed when you're eating? Are you chewing your food properly? Uh, because if not, and if you're eating in a hurry, then the signals aren't being sent to your stomach to get ready for food. So food will arrive and it will suddenly have to produce a, a flush of stomach acid. And sometimes this can mean that too much is produced and also the little ring of muscle, the sphincter of muscle at the top of your stomach doesn't close properly. And then you can get a little bit more um, kind of heartburn, a bit more reflux uh, coming back up. So I definitely look at your eating habits to make sure you are relaxing, sitting down to eat sitting down and sitting still for a few minutes after you've eaten as well to allow the food to pass down comfortably to your stomach and to make sure that's um, happening. Um, in terms of remedies that you could use to support it, one of my favorite ones for heartburn is something called silicone gel. Do you guys have it over there? The, I haven't um, heard of it. You might have an equivalent. Um, it's just silica gel. It's it, that's it really it's very very plain um, and the silica helps to coat and soothe all the digestive um, tract so right the way through from mouth right the way through to rectum so it's good for any kind of inflammation or irritation at any point in your digestive system but it's really cooling and soothing for heartburn and reflux um, so that would be an option um, also a very good quality aloe vera juice can help as well so using that regularly can again help with the um, heartburn symptoms um, using digestive bitters before you eat, that's a real favourite of mine because that helps to stimulate um, the vagus nerve, which tells the stomach to get ready for food. And it also help, they help to tone that ring of muscle at the top of your stomach as well. So maybe looking at things like Centauri, 
yarrow, dandelion, and there's quite a few different digestive bitters, and you can get them in combinations as well. And they do taste really bitter, that is the point. Um, so you have to just hold it in your mouth for a minute or so, let that bitter taste work, and then swallow it. Um, if it's really persistent, and if this gets worse, then I would definitely see a practitioner because it could be worth being checked out for Helicobacter pylori, and um, just in case you've got an overgrowth of that, because heartburn is one of the symptoms of that as well. And then another idea would be for her to take HCL, betaine HCL with pepsin, and because, you know, if you have protein in your stomach and you have low stomach acid, and you're not able to break down because proteins require stomach acid oh, and pepsin to break down the food. Um, where if you're not having, if you're not eating protein, it, it's not, it doesn't require as much stomach acid to break it down. And so if you're eating a meal that's lacking in protein, you probably don't need as much um, HCL. Um, but if you are having, let's say, you know, who knows, 15 ounces, that's a lot, but um, eight ounces of chicken breast for lunch, that betaine HCL with pepsin could help you digest that protein. So that's what I would suggest is to try taking some of that and seeing if maybe you just are low on stomach acid and need that stomach acid to help you digest your food. Is yeah. it that idea? It is true. I have to say it's not something I would normally do first. I tend to go more for the digestive bitters first because bitters. it's about retraining the body to produce its own stomach and just getting that cephalic response back and the, the action of the vagus nerve and things. And sometimes if it, somebody is already having the heartburn and they've got the irritation there, then the actual um, betaine and pepsin can make that irritation a bit worse. But if the digestive bitters aren't enough, then yeah trying to move on to um, something that like a betaine um, and just start really low dose on that because obviously you're taking acid. So starting low and building it up gradually. So talk about the digestive bitters just for a little bit of how do you take them? When do you take them of, you know, like right before you're about to eat or, and what is your favorite kind of brand that you like? Okay, um, there's a few different combinations and the idea is that you take them about 10 to 20 minutes before a meal. They come as a liquid. Um, now you can get capsule versions of some of these herbs, but in this case, if you're trying to support the stomach and stomach acid production, you need it as a liquid. So it comes as a tincture and you would put um, the drops into a little bit of water, hold it in your mouth and it tastes bitter. It really does. Um, but that stimulates the bitter taste on your tongue, which then tells um, the vagus nerve and that goes down to the stomach. So you're sending these nerve messages down to your stomach. And so it starts to produce the gastric juices in response to that bitter taste. So that when you eat the food, the stomach is already ready and the gastric juices are there so they can get to work digesting your food properly. Um, and some of the bitters like centauri that also has a turning effect on the lower esophageal sphincter, that ring of muscle at the top of the stomach, so helping that to close properly and keep the food and the acid in the stomach rather than it refluxing back up again. Um, I've got, um, which one have I got? Nature's Answer 
do you have that nature's answer um, in America? I've heard that one. I've heard of urban moonshine. Have you heard of that one? No, I've not heard of that one. I'm sure there's lots of them. I tend to go for um, nature's answer or Meridian um, or Avogel. They do some different ones as well. So they tend to have very similar herbs in so Yarra, Centauri, um, Dandelion. And this, yeah, they tend to be kind of on a theme of those. Sometimes I might have ginger in there as well. I would avoid anything with peppermint um, because peppermint can relax that muscle at the top of the stomach. And so that can actually make um, heartburn uh, worse for some people. But going for those bitters is really helpful. Um, if you forget to take them before your meal, you can take them afterwards just as soon as possible afterwards so that it is going to still um, work on that food that is in your stomach. I wouldn't and do so, that kind of an hour after food though. So how long are you putting it just in your mouth before you swallow it? If you can do about 30 seconds, that's brilliant. But it does taste bitter, so some people can't and they just kind of knock it back. That's fine, you know, you're still going to get an effect from it. But if you can allow that um, taste to circulate in your mouth, then it's helping to stimulate the, the nerves. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just listening to you talk is just soothing. <laughs> <laughs> I love your accent so much. So where can our listeners go to follow you and your work? Okay, so I can be found um, at www.nutritioninyork.co.uk. That's my website. Um, and then I have a free Facebook group, which is also called Nutrition in York. Um, and yeah, if you want to join, just um, apply to join. And like I say, there's a couple of questions, just quick questions to answer. And then that's it. You're in the group. There's also a Facebook page of the same name as well. And I'm on Twitter, which is at Nutrition in York. So it's all the same name. Just remember Nutrition in York. Awesome. And if you have a question that you want answered, go to questions at ChantelRayway.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.